This morning, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Let me read it for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When you praise God, it's worth asking, what do you praise him for? I have heard well-meaning people try to make a distinction between praising God for who he is and for what he's done. And even those who often pray to the ACTS acronym, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, usually start that acronym with praising God for who he is and then you work later to praising God for what he's done. And so I understand that there's some, can be some good that comes from distinguishing between those two facets. You can be thankful to God for, for who he is and for what he's done, but I want you to appreciate this morning that what he's done for you is a reflection of who he is. That when you're praising God for his character, you often see and experience his character through his acts towards you. We learn about God from his, his word, but we also learn about God from how he acts in this world, from what he does. And so the more you appreciate his actions, the more robust and rich and deep your worship to him will be for who he is. And so let me give you just kind of a, a superficial example from marriage. Deidre and I are doing premarital for for a, a couple from our church right now. And one of the questions that the premarital work we're going through asks is, you know, what is your love for your future spouse going to be rooted in? And, you know, kind of the, the answer that an engaged couple gives. And it's just adorable to listen to an engaged couple talk about this. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to love each other through thick and thin, no matter what the other person does, because they're committed to the relationship and they, they make the vow. And that's this kind of thing that can sound very romantic even and mature before you're married, right? Like, uh, I, I will love you no matter what and no matter who you are because that's the choice we're making and through better or worse, you know, it's the vow and everything. But like around year 10 of marriage, that's not a romantic answer anymore, is it? And why do you love me? Well, I love you because I made a commitment to you. It's not based on how you act <laughs> or what you've done. <laughs> but in who you are. <laughs> okay. So the truth is, and we understand this at a marriage level, that the longer you're married, the deeper your love should grow for your spouse because the more you see how they act towards you. That analogy breaks down at some point because we are sinners and we act towards each other in unbecoming ways. But it does not break down when you apply that rubric to God. The longer you know the Lord, the deeper your love for him should be because the more evidence you've seen in your life of his kindness and his mercy towards you, the more you appreciate his actions towards you, the more you grow in your love and affection for him. The more you know about God, the more you can praise him accurately and more intimately and the more 
rich your love will be for him when you ponder all of his wondrous deeds. And this passage in Ephesians 1 explains that very well. Of all the New Testament, this I think is the passage my mind goes to when I see the nature of God connected to the actions of God. This passage moves you through the Trinity, the Trinity by its nature, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and shows you how all three persons of the Godhead act towards you according to their nature. We'll look at this over the next four weeks, but we'll begin this week by looking at how the the Father acts towards us in the gospel. And so let me give you an outline this morning because the, the verses we'll look at this morning really capture these three facets of this, these three reasons we praise God, and they're all connected to his sovereignty and salvation. So verses three through six of Ephesians 1 stress for you. They underline these three ways God acts towards you in salvation, which should then cause you to rejoice and love and praise him all the more. Now in our outline, I say three reasons we praise God, but what we're looking at this morning is specifically the Father. The actions we'll highlight this morning are three ways the Father acts towards us. And as we look at this passage over the next month to come, we're going to work through all the persons of the Trinity because Paul goes through them in order. The Father will act, and we'll see that today. The Son will act, we'll see that next week, and then the Spirit will act. We'll look at that in a a few weeks. There is an order to the Trinity, though. The three persons of God are, are all God. They all share the nature of God. But the Bible does present them in order. It is always the Father first, the Son second, and the Spirit Third, there is this order is revealed in the Trinity. And you see this all over the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way here through Ephesians. In Genesis 1 with creation, you see the Father who speaks, the Son who is the Word, the Spirit who hovers above the waters. You see the Father who sends the Son, the Son who comes to earth to procure our salvation, and the Holy Spirit who comes to earth to draw us to faith in God. All three persons of the Trinity, you see them in creation, in redemption, in how, in providence, how God orchestrates the affairs of of the world for the glory of the Son and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Bible presents the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, always in that same order. It's always the Father who is first. That's what it means to be Father, is He is, in, in some sense, the source. It is He that gives life to the Son. Of course, without beginning, the Son is eternal and the Father is eternal. But what it means to be the Father is that He has a Son. And this goes back into eternity past. It's Jesus Himself who said, the, As the Father has granted me to have life in myself, speaking of the eternal nature of His life, so He gives eternal life to us. There's always this order in the Trinity. It's the Father who sends the Son, the Father and the Son together who send the Spirit. And I mention this just because we begin this morning with our look at the Father. And I do fear that the Father is in some sense the forgotten member of the Trinity in our own evangelical culture. We have a high appreciation for Jesus. Everything in our mind goes back to the cross. You know, the cross is the center of Scripture. We interpret all the passages of the Bible and how they relate to Jesus. We have a very Christocentric view of theology and of the way God is working in the world. And that's, that's good and right and proper. The danger of that is that it's very easy to lose sight of who the Father is and how the Father acts in eternity past, how the Father providentially ordains the affairs of the world, how the Father's character is unmovable. He's the rock. <clears throat> He's the fountain of all things in the, in the world. And we lose sight of that, I think. It's, it's much easier to look at the cross than it is an eternal 
Father. Of course, we experience the Holy Spirit most immediately and how he saves us and sanctifies us that it's just so easy to lose sight of the Father. We had dinner last night, some, some friends and people from the seminary with a guy who got saved out of oneness Pentecostalism. He grew up in a oneness Pentecostal church and he mentioned to us that um, they weren't allowed to pray to the Father because oneness Pentecostalism is the idea that, the, that God is one person and he may appear in different forms, you know, a shape-shifting God, you know, in, in time where he's the Father in eternity past, he's the Son in this world, he's the Spirit as you encounter him now and in, in heaven and it's the same person just in different forms. And that's, it's a heretical doctrine of modalism. It denies the nature of the Trinity. But he pointed out that in that, growing up in that, they would only pray to Jesus, not to the Father because... When you're praying about the gospel, your prayers go to Jesus. While that is heretical, I think if we're honest, it often captures our own attitude towards theology. When we want to talk about Jesus and worship Jesus, we can lose sight of the Father as the one who is the architect and the source, the fountain of all things. And that's what we find here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he begins, Paul does, with saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By identifying God as the Father, he's identifying him as the source of every good and pure thing. He is the Father, the Father even of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And so the first reason we praise God, we praise the Father for his gifts that he gives us. And that's where Paul begins in verse 3. We praise the Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins by saying we praise God because he's given us every spiritual blessing. It's worth marveling here for a second where Paul is writing Ephesians from. If you recall, Paul is writing this from prison. And was Paul guilty? No, it was mob justice. They thought he was trying to overthrow the world and bring an end to the idol makers and causing riots and defiling the temple, which, you know, he wasn't doing. He makes that clear. He wasn't defiling the temple. The Jewish mob grabs him, arrests him. He's turned over to the Romans for trial. Even the Roman governor and king recognizes that Paul is innocent and was going to give him his freedom if Paul didn't appeal to Caesar. And so he's in Custody here on the Mediterranean coast in Caesarea Maritime, eventually transferred to Rome. It is from these prisons that he's writing Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. He's, these are jail letters. And notice that when Paul starts this jail letter, he does not start by saying, please pray for my freedom. This is a miscarriage of justice, an offense against religious freedom now and forevermore. <laughs> I mean, think about how you would write a letter like this. If you were arrested for being a, a Christian and thrown into prison and you were writing a letter to your church, would you begin it with, here's nine reasons I'm really stoked about worshiping God right now. <laughs> Number one, he's sovereign over all things. <laughs> Is that where you would start? That's where Paul starts. Paul's so consumed by the heavenly blessings of the gospel, he's, it's as if he doesn't realize he's in jail when he's writing and worshiping God. His wrists are in chains. His feet are in a jail cell. His heart is in heaven. And he wants yours to be there too. That's where he begins. Just He's unbelievably filled with awe about all of the spiritual blessings God has given us. Every spiritual blessing, he says. Now, of course, every spiritual blessing does come from the Father. He is the source of everything that is good. As we'll see next week, the Son is the gift, and in a few weeks, the Spirit is the one who applies the gift. 
but it all starts with the Father. We praise the Father because every good and perfect gift comes from him. He is the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting due to change. If there is something good spiritually in the world, it comes from the Father. It's his nature to be a giver. He, he gives himself. In eternity past, he gives life to the Son. And in time, he gives us all good things. Everything we have in our world comes from China. <laughs> this iPod, this Bible, Crossway prints their Bibles in China, this remote made in China. This podium is probably from China. This rug certainly is. Every spiritual blessing comes from heaven. That's where they all come from. If there is a spiritual blessing in the world, it is from heaven. Produced by our eternal father, who is the consummate giver. He's omnibenevolent. He keeps on giving out of his kindness. This is why the Bible refers to God as a fountain. He is giving. He's giving joy and love and harmony and fellowship even in, within his own nature in eternity past. And it spills over into creation as he gives us every good and perfect gift. He gives us sanctification, 1 Peter 3 verse 9 says, which is a spiritual blessing from him. Faith is a spiritual gift from him. Chapter 1, verse 15 of Ephesians says, uh, for this reason I praise God because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. He gives thanks to God because of faith. Freedom from sin is a gift from the Father, John tells us. The gospel is a gift from the Father. Jesus is a gift from the Father. Light, love, life. Notice what those words have in common where the scriptures often define God as light and love and life. They're all you know, luminaries. God is radiating light. He is giving love. He is dispensing life from himself. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Is there something good that is spiritual in the world? It is from your heavenly father. Is there something good spiritually in you? It is from the father. And he doesn't give us these gifts reluctantly. He lavishes them on us. Verse 8 of Ephesians 1 says, he lavishes them on us. He doesn't give them in a stingy fashion. They come from the overflow of his heart. And verse 5 says, one of these gifts is he adopts us through Jesus Christ. And if you are a father, if you are a rich, kind, benevolent father, the best gift you could give somebody is adoption. So Paul is using these hyperbolic, lofty terms here. And although God really does adopt us. In, in Paul's mind, this is the, the, the most lofty word he can describe. The most lofty gift God can do. If he is a true eternal father, what is the most extreme blessing the eternal father can do? Well, he can adopt you as his son. There's nothing greater than that. Because if you're adopted into the father's household, you, you have access to him. You're partaker of his kingdom, of his nature, of everything. We partake in the riches of the one who adopt us. Those are the spiritual blessings he gives us. And it is worth noting that all these gifts, verse 3 says, are in Christ. He's blessed us with them in Christ, the middle of verse 3 says. Non-believers, those outside of Christ, they can experience good things. They just can't experience good spiritual things. There's common grace in the world. 
Non-believers can watch, you know, Monday night football. They can have a milkshake. They can be married. They can have kids and enjoy the sunset. But those aren't spiritual blessings. Those are blessings of common grace. Spiritual blessings come only, verse 3 says, through Christ. They come from heaven through Christ, and they're spiritual because they're applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So notice in verse 3 here, you see all three persons of the Trinity right away in verse 3. The Father is the giver. He gives his gifts through Christ. Christ is the channel, and the Holy Spirit is the one who applies them, making them spiritual blessings. But they all have their origin in heaven. He is the Father of lights. Every spiritual blessing comes from him. So praise God because he gives you spiritually good things. Secondly, you praise God for his choice. You praise the Father for his choice. That's where Paul goes in verse 4. Even as he chose us, this phrase, even as he gives us all spiritual blessings, they're connected to the choice that he has made for us to be in him. He made that choice before the foundation of the world. So God, Paul's now tying that God has given us spiritual blessings through Christ by the Holy Spirit, and he does so because he chose us to receive them before the foundations of the world. This is the doctrine of election, also called predestination in verse 5, that God chooses whom to give these blessings to. He does not give them to everyone. He gives them to specific people whom he has chosen to be in Christ. And there are those that try to argue out of the very clear teaching of verse 4 and 5 by saying eh, this is true about every spiritual blessing, but not salvation. And in other words, you're saved not by God's choice, but by your own choice. And God has chosen to give spiritual blessings to those who self-select into Christ. But that doesn't make any sense to me because if there are any spiritual blessings, salvation certainly has to be one of them, right? Right? If you're going to make a list of spiritual blessings and your list does not have salvation on it, I don't have time for the rest of your list. Certainly, salvation is first and foremost among our spiritual blessings. And verse 4 says he has chosen for us to receive that. And specifically, Paul calls out a couple things that we're predestined for here, that we're chosen for. By the way, predestined just means that the destination is chosen beforehand. And you understand this in the era of cell phones and GPS maps or whatever. You're going to go somewhere. You put in the address before you start driving. Before you start driving. (laughs) Can I get an amen? You know, (laughs) come on. (laughs) The idea, though, is that you've selected your destination before you're going. That's all the word predestined means. What's connected here to the choice of God is that God has predestined people for heaven based upon his choice of them. He chooses to save them. He chooses to give them his spiritual blessings. Namely, the two Paul specifically calls out are holiness and heaven. He chooses to set them apart, he says in verse 4. Set that we should be holy. Holy is a word for set apart. He chooses us to be Declared righteous, that's the phrase for blameless there. He chooses to have the record of our wrongs nailed to the cross where Jesus bears the penalty for our sin and he declares us to be righteous. Our salvation in a very real way was accomplished on the cross when Jesus declares to Telestai it is finished. It was done and achieved at that point. We experience it in time, but it was accomplished at the cross and it was planned by God before he made the world, he says. 
by using the word predestination here, Paul's stressing that it was planned before time, but will carry on after the end of this world as we go right on into heaven. So there's a very eternal scope here. Before time, God chooses us for heaven. In time, he creates the world. The son dies on the cross for our sin. The Holy Spirit saves us, and then we die, and we go to heaven. So it is spanning all of eternity here. When did he make this choice of us? Well, it says before, verse 4, the foundation of the world. That's when he made this choice. And there's a lot to just be gobsmacked at about that, isn't there? That he didn't make the world good, holy, and pure, and then sin enters the world because the devil got in the garden and Adam and Eve sinned, and now the human race has fallen, and now God says, uh-oh, What's going to happen? Adam and Eve are going to have children. They're going to populate the world. I will save some of them. That's got the order of this all wrong. God knew about the fall before he made the world. And not just the fall. God chose people to save, which means that he knew you before he made you. And he knew you before he made the world. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. I mean, that's staggering to think about. So now you're starting to get this plan of God in his mind before he creates the world. He, he plans. He, he's, this is a plan that God has. That he will make the world. That sin will come into the world. That people will fall into sin. And he will save specific people. And this is in his mind before he makes anything. It was Spurgeon who said, it's a good thing God chose me before I was born because he never would have afterwards. <laughs> the point he's making is that God is determinative on who is going to be saved. Now, you can go too far in this and you can have an extreme understanding of predestination and election which negates means. You know, that's called fatalism. A fatalist would say that since God knows he's going to heaven and hell, nothing matters. There don't need to be means. But the Bible makes it very clear, even in Ephesians 1 and 2, that God does use means to save people, namely the means of faith. You see this in verse one, chapter 1, verse 15. God saves people through their faith. God saves people through the sending of his son. God saves people through the gospel. So God chooses how he will save people in addition to choosing whom he will save. He chooses both. So it, it denies the clear teaching of Scripture to say because God chooses some to heaven, we don't need to pray for them, we don't need to witness to them, we don't need to bring the gospel to them, they don't need to have faith because God's already chosen them, Sarah, Sarah. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you do pray for non-believers. You do evangelize non-believers. You do bring them the gospel. They do need to exercise faith by placing their, their trust and confidence for salvation in the previous death of Jesus Christ, who was sent by God to the earth to die for sinners. All of that is necessary for salvation. Nobody will be saved unless they call upon the name of the Lord. And nobody can call upon the name of the Lord unless they hear of him. Nobody can hear of him unless a gospel messenger is sent. So this is all part of God's plan. What I'm saying is that God doesn't only choose who to save, he chooses how he will save them, namely through their faith, namely through the sending of Jesus Christ, and namely through the preaching of the gospel. So you take that whole package together, the overarching deep-seated point here is that God chooses this. This is God's choice. 
When Paul starts this jailhouse letter, he does not start with a celebratory tome on free will. He starts with a celebratory tome on God's free will. That God chooses this. This is not a teaching confined to Ephesians 1. This is Jesus' words. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Many are called, Jesus says, but few are chosen. And what that means is that the gospel call, in some sense, goes out to the world. I know not every nation has the gospel. Not every person will hear the gospel. But the point is the call is broad. But the way to life is narrow. Not all who hear the gospel were chosen to receive salvation. This is what the scriptures teach. But the scriptures also teach that the Father chose you to be set apart and holy. The Father chose you to be blameless, to have the record of your sins nailed to the cross, and you would be adopted into his family. This was all his choice. If you're a believer, Paul's story here is your story. God chose you for this. These are truths that are not merely confined to the Apostle Paul, but apply to every believer. Often I think those who were raised apart from the church have an easier time believing this than those who were raised in the church. That's been my experience. Because when you're raised apart from the church, it's very easy to believe in the sovereign predestinating power of God and his electing love. I mean, I did not go shopping for Jesus. I wasn't, as an 18-year-old who was living a life of sin and living for myself and worshiping the God of Baal, I pronounced it ball, soccer ball, but <laughs> it was the God of Baal. That was my life. I was flung headlong into sin. I was not on the lookout for Jesus. And yet he came and found me. A friend was tenaciously inviting me to church and sharing the gospel with me. And that I finally, you know, gave in and went to church and heard the gospel. And the, I did not go that morning, believe me, I did not go that morning expecting to leave as a Christian. And the Lord saved me. So it's very easy for me to believe that, you know, God chooses him, he's going to save, because there is no other explanation for me. I have often encountered obstacles to this teaching from those who are raised in the church because they have lacked that experience. You know, if you're, you're born, and as my three girls are, we do family devotionals almost every night. We will read a passage and talk about it. We will sing a song together and talk about a hymn together. We pray together. This is how my kids are growing up. And so when they exercise faith, it's going to be harder for them to say, this is so supernatural because it's all they know. And so it's challenging for them to have to go back in their mind and say, well, who chose my parents for salvation? Or who chose, on Deidre's side, who chose her parents for salvation. I mean, they had very unlikely salvation testimonies, which we always tell our girls because we want them to appreciate that, that this is, you know, the gospel entered our family through unlikely means. Now, her, her dad was a salesman in Quebec who got snowed in his hotel room and couldn't, doesn't know French, couldn't watch TV, finds a Gideon Bible, the only thing in English in the hotel room. You're going to tell me God's not sovereign over salvation? Not a business trip in Toronto. I wouldn't be married if his trip was in Toronto. <laughs> Sometimes there's obstacles to this teaching from parents who raise their kids in the church and the kids then leave the faith. Because then, who's responsible for Is this saying that that's God's fault? Why didn't God choose my son and daughter for salvation? That seems to be what this is saying. And so there's objections to this truth. 
But you need to let the full force of this hit you, that God has a plan for salvation incredibly and inexplicably in his own mind that he brings to pass in this world, and he brings it to pass by choosing to save some, predestining some for heaven. People say, I don't believe in predestination. <laughs> well, the word is barking at you from verse 5 here. I mean, it's, it's pretty loud, too. So I don't, you don't want to be the person who reads verse 5 and says, yeah, I don't believe that. Okay, I mean, it's still there. Even if you don't believe it, it's still there. Still there. <laughs> and God's unconditional election is just that. It's unconditional. I've heard it said that God chooses to save people because he knows that they'll choose him. What does that even mean? It doesn't make any sense. God knew that I would choose him when he saved me, so he saved me. It's like the, you remember the VCR tapes that had the sticker on it, be kind, please rewind? It's bad theology that God watched the movie ahead of time, rewound it, and chose what would happen. That doesn't make any sense. It's not choosing what would happen if you watched the movie ahead of time, especially the things he's watching is him intervening radically in people's lives. No, that's not what this teaches. This does not teach that God saw what you would do, so he chose you to do what you chose to do. It's unconditional that God in his own mind chose us to be in him before he made any of us. Well, the third reason we praise God, we praise the Father for his gifts, namely every spiritual blessing, one of which is salvation. We praise the Father for his choice, that he chose to save us and make us holy and blameless and adopt us into his family. And thirdly, we praise the Father for his purpose, because all of this is going to raise this question. Why doesn't God save everyone then, right? That's the question. Why doesn't God save everybody? Well... It's a very good question. And I hope you appreciate, if you understand this part, the rest will fall into place. I hope you appreciate that you have to answer that question whether or not you believe in predestination. So say you're a person who says, I deny predestination. God does not choose. The, God chooses to save everyone. The devil chooses to damn everyone. It's a tie vote and you cast the deciding vote. That's the decision. So people are in charge of who goes to heaven, not God, not the devil. People make the choice. Okay. Does God know, I'm going to apply your be kind, please rewind theology to you now. Does God know that this person, person X, that this person will not choose him before he makes that person? Yes. Does he make him anyway? Yes. So you still have to answer the question, why did God make him? Why doesn't God only make people who will choose him? I mean, everybody has the same problem here, namely that the road to heaven is narrow and the way to hell is wide. That's the problem. And that is a problem from Genesis 1 straight through Revelation 22. It is a problem everywhere in the Bible that the way to heaven is narrow. And few find it. I mean, that's the issue. So one answer is God 
chooses to magnify free will, magnify the importance of our choices and decisions by saying, I will make you and you can choose what happens to you. That's one answer. I do not see that answer taught in the Bible and it is not acceptable to me. It's not worth it for me. The, the juice is not worth the squeeze there. It's not worth it that hell is real and most people are there so that I can have a high view of free will. There's got to be better answers. Well, the answer that Paul gives here anyway is that God has a purpose in this. Namely, verse, the end of verse 5, this is all to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That God has designed salvation to work this way because this magnifies his grace. It's singing praise to him. His grace is seen as glorious by doing salvation this way. Now, let me say first, I might not agree with that. If it were up to me, I would say God's grace would be seen as more glorious if he just saved everyone. However, upon consulting the footnotes here, I realized God didn't ask me. <laughs> I was not consulted with this plan. So something is going on where God designs his grace to be made more glorious this way than by saving everyone. So what is going on there? Pretend I bring two people to church. This happened to me one Sunday. I brought two different friends of mine from my, my soccer teammates in college. I brought two of them. I'm a brand new Christian. I lean on two of them. Two of them come to church with me. We hear a great gospel sermon. Pastor preaches the gospel, incredible sermon. You're like, you hear the message, and you're like, everyone who hears this needs to get saved. And I brought two non-believers with me, one on my right, one on my left. Both going to get saved. And one of them gets saved, and not the other one. Why one and not the other? Why this guy, not that guy? What separates the two of them? Was one more predisposed to be saved? on his own volition? Was one more eager to be saved? Was one more ready to be saved? Was one more, I don't know, inclined to believe authority or truth? Or I don't know what it is. Was, or maybe just was in the right mood? I mean, I don't know what, the, there's no answer for that question. And if your answer is about something inside of the person, like, oh, this person, he got saved because there was something in him that made him more ready. Do you see how that magnifies the person? There's something in him that led him to faith. That does not magnify God's saving glorious grace. In fact, the opposite is probably true. The more unlikely the convert, the more God's grace is magnified, right? And lo and behold, that's exactly what you find in the Bible. If God saved everybody, there would be exactly zero unlikely converts. But by saving few, God's glorious grace is magnified by saving the most unlikely of people. If God wanted to save everybody in an extreme sense, if that was his plan in his heart, if he chose everyone for salvation, he would have done it. The Father will not set his aim on something and miss. God will not design something in his heart and fail to carry it out. He won't have a desire that will go unrequited. 
He won't plan salvation and be thwarted by man. After all, it was Jonah who declared salvation belongs to Yahweh. And Jonah said that, by the way, in the belly of a fish. After being run out of Israel by a bunch of functional pagans and seeing a boat of actual pagans get saved. Then swallowed by a fish and Jonah says, salvation, I I don't know what's going on, but salvation belongs to God. That's all I know right now. The answer for election is here. God doesn't save everyone because by choosing to save some, he magnifies his glorious grace even more. Even more. Everyone rejects God right up to the moment he saves them. That's the truth. Everyone rejects God. If God made salvation determinative on our free will, then nobody would be saved because nobody would choose God. But by saving unlikely people, he magnifies his glorious, his glorious grace. Only God can do this. Only God can take a stony heart out of a person and put in a heart of the flesh. Only God can save the unlikely people. God doesn't save people who are only kind of sinners and pass over those who are extreme sinners, right? 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. Why did Paul believe and not the Pharisees who were handing Paul their jackets while they stoned Stephen to death? I mean, they were all stoning Stephen. Why Paul gets faith and not the other Pharisees? Was Paul more ready for faith? Was Paul more eager to choose? No. He was the chief of sinners. Does God pass over some because they're too little for salvation? No. He chooses David and not Saul. Tiny David and not big, handsome Saul. Are some people too weak to choose God and No, he chooses the weak. He tells that Deuteronomy 7, I chose Israel because they are weak. The bottom line is that if God left salvation up to us, nobody would be saved. But instead we find that God saves whomever he wants to. And he saves them by adopting them. He saves them by loving them. He saves them by dying for them. And he designs this in his mind before the foundations of the world. Oh, brothers and sisters, remember a time when you rejected Christ. Remember a time when you had your heart closed to the truth. Remember a time when you did not bow your knee before God, when you did not believe the Bible, when you did not cherish Christ. Remember that time and then ask yourself, what changed you? Certainly it was the grace of our sovereign Lord. This is not a popular truth in a democratic country that teaches self-determination and Self-autonomy, I am the captain of my ship, I am the master of my destiny, that is our creed. And so every attempt has been made to blunt the edges of Ephesians 1. Every attempt has been made to contrive a way out of this. But I won't allow it. You have to deal with the truth that's here. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation depends upon grace. Is it wrong for God to give grace? No. Nobody is saved without faith. Of course not. Nobody is saved without Jesus. Nobody is saved without election. In the same way that nobody is saved without faith or saved without Christ, nobody is saved without the doctrine of election. And so pray for non-believers. Pray the Lord would draw them to himself. And ask yourself, this is what clicked in my mind. There was a time when I didn't believe this doctrine, and this is what clicked in my mind. I I would get up every morning and pray that the Lord would bless my evangelism that day. And then one day I ask myself, what am I praying for? 
Why am I praying the Lord would bless my evangelism today? What exactly do I want God to do? I mean, I'm praying and praying and praying, God, please save this person. Please save this person. Somebody asked me earlier this morning, you know, I have a relative who's not following the Lord. Are you saying I, I shouldn't pray for that person? I'm like, no, you should pray for that person precisely because it's God who saves. If salvation doesn't belong to God, then certainly don't pray to him. But because it does belong to God, beg God, pray to God, and see what the Lord does according to his sovereign will. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, and you're hearing this sermon, what are you supposed to hear in this? Let me ask you this way. What is a non-Christian, what is somebody who doesn't have faith in Jesus doing at church on a Sunday morning, 9.30, hearing a sermon about the doctrine of election? I mean, think of what the Lord has got to be doing in your life to get you here. He's doing something. I don't know all the secret plans of God, but something is going on. <laughs> Maybe you're in a position of brokenness and there's trials in your life, and the Lord has used that to finally bring you to a point where you hear the gospel. Maybe you're a strong and proud person and the Lord is... You know, you're here because you just know you're not going to believe it. And the Lord has used that to open your ears to the gospel. To hear the message of a Savior who embodied God's electing love, who came to seek and save the lost. I don't know what God's doing, but he, he's brought you here this morning. Hear the news that God loves sinners. That he sent his son to die for sinners that Jesus bears our sin in his own body. Your sin becomes his and he dies in your place. He rises from the graves that you can have eternal life. That's the message. While all our hearts and all our songs sing about the saving grace of God, sing about this wonderful table he set here of salvation before us, each of us has to cry out, Lord, why was I invited as a guest? Why was I made to hear God's voice? Why was I called to enter the room when thousands reject? When thousands would rather starve than come to the Lord's table, why did he invite me? Lord, we're thankful that you are a saving God. That you give your gospel to those who are far off and you bring them near. We're grateful for the love that you've shown us of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.